Welcome to this podcast from St. Michael and All Angels Episcopal Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope you consider hitting like or subscribe. We hope you will share this audio with your friends and neighbors, help others know about our inclusive, theologically progressive community of faith. If you'd like to support our ministries, you can make a gift at stmichaelsabq.org. Gracious God, let these words be more than words. Give us the spirit of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Each year before the beginning of Lent, we climb Mount Tabor with the disciples. And we pause here for a story so miraculous, Jesus orders his followers to keep silent until after he has risen from the dead. And this is the story, this is the Sunday of the Transfiguration. Here it's another Sunday as well, but it's Transfiguration Day while we're at church. Every year before Lent, we tell this story. We go to the mountaintop to shout hallelujah before facing the hard road to Jerusalem. And this morning, I want to dare you to hold this strange story of transfiguration up against the stories of transformation that our world so often tells. We celebrate surface-level transformation stories in our world, don't we? We like and subscribe. I wonder whether history books, when they talk about the early 21st century, will feature a little inset, you know, one of those gray boxes in the history books, and inside it will be a before and after picture. And the little summary underneath will say, they were obsessed with these in the early 21st century. We see a lot of those before and afters, don't we? For weight loss, for cosmetic surgery, for dental implants. I can't go to a doctor's office anymore without encountering in the waiting room a television show about people who are fixing up a house. They're always knocking out a wall to make it open concept. We tell a lot of stories about this kind of transformation, this transformation that can be measured with slimmer waistlines or higher cheekbones or the addition of a kitchen island. There's always a kitchen island. But is that the only kind of transformation we expect? Are our expectations so limited that we can only imagine our life mostly as it is, but with a couple of extra filters applied, with a coat of paint and some subway tile? Is that all we dream for? Or does God invite us to hope for something more? I want to invite you today, I want to dare you today to hold this story of the transfiguration up against the stories of transformation we hear, we see so often. Because Jesus' story isn't just about changing something exterior. Sure, it starts there. Jesus' clothes get magically brighter, whiter, cleaner. But that's not the heart of the story, is it? The cloud descends. God's voice says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. The transfiguration is about the veil being lifted from the disciples' eyes so they can see something which is always true. It's less about Jesus being transformed and more about the sight the vision of his followers being transformed. 
Now we need to acknowledge there are a lot of churches out there that promise external transformation. If you just say your prayers, if you come faithfully to your small group, if you mail your offering in this provided envelope, God will bless you. Now, often the blessed transformation these churches promise is an economic blessing. God will return your offering tenfold. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that many of our religious institutions end up fixated on what our world holds out as success. Once, sitting in the waiting room of my allergist's office, I saw one of those fixer-upper shows, and this one was about a pastor's house that was being remodeled. And I got really stuck on this show because at the end, he thanked the crew and he invited them all together and he thanked God for the blessing of his remodel. Now, I want to be careful here because I do believe that that pastor and his family experienced the renovation of their house as a blessing. Absolutely, no question. But something inside of me was so frustrated by that show. I'm still thinking about it a couple years later. Because if blessing is only measured economically, if you can count all your blessings when you file your taxes, because you owe the IRS part of those blessings, I worry that your view of blessing is too small. Your view of faith is too small. Your view of the kind of transformation God wants to offer our world is too small. And this was a week when we saw too small thinking in action. Many of us in this church journeyed last month up to Santa Fe, up to the Roundhouse, to the Capitol, to push for the Dignity Not Detention Bill. We were working with partners to put one of our ministries out of business. Because here at St. Michael's, our landing ministry receives migrants who are coming out of detention. The Dignity and Not Detention Act would have closed all of the detention centers in New Mexico. We wouldn't have had any more of the guys coming to stay with us. And we were working to close these centers because we keep hearing the stories about what is going on inside the detention centers in New Mexico. We hear about inadequate food, spoiled food. Most of the guys that come to us report that they've lost 20 or so pounds by the time they get to the church. Most of them stayed 30, 60 days. I interviewed a young man up at Torrance who had been unable to wash his clothes for weeks because he wasn't being paid for his labor of cleaning the facility as he was supposed to be being paid. He apologized to me for the smell, and I could tell he was visibly uncomfortable wearing those dirty clothes. We hear story after story like this from the detention centers. The New York Times had an article this week about the use of solitary confinement in these centers and how abusive it is to the migrants who are stuck inside. And so we were part of a movement that was seeking to end detention like this in New Mexico. But even though the act passed resoundingly to th through two Senate committees, it died on the Senate floor. Otero County, Torrance County, Cibola County, those officials from those counties, they managed to convince enough senators to prioritize economics over human rights. The counties say they rely on the income from these for-profit prisons, and their argument, it swayed just over half of the Senate to kill the bill. As I said, I believe our senators thought too small this week, and I'm deeply disappointed. 
I know many of us in the congregation are as well. So I needed this transfiguration story this week. I needed the mountaintop. I needed a vision of hope. The Senate vote happened on Monday, so I had the week to process the loss. I grieve for the thousands who will be locked up in our state this year for the terrible conditions. And I found myself thinking about two saints of the church. And two saints I found myself thinking about this week were Blessed Absalom Jones and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I'm canonizing Desmond Tutu, to be clear. (laughs) Absalom Jones, though, if you haven't heard of him, maybe you have, but he was the first black person, the first formerly enslaved person to be ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church. But Absalom Jones wasn't just Episcopal famous. Because his sermon of thanksgiving for the end of the slave trade is one of the first published addresses of a black person living in the United States. What's so remarkable about the sermon is that Absalom called not just for the end of the slave trade, but for the end of the institution of slavery in its entirety. This was 1808. It would be almost 60 years before the Emancipation Proclamation and then the 13th Amendment finally ended the institution. And still, Absalom Jones dared to say that God has a covenant with black Americans, that God wouldn't rest until those who were enslaved were truly free. Faced with one transformation, Absalom Jones demanded another. Bishop Tutu wrote similarly about God's power to transform a racist regime. He writes about a moment when he and some of his colleagues in the long struggle against apartheid were meeting with the prime minister of South Africa at a seminary which had been closed. The seminary was closed in the late 20th century for violating the racist policies of the state It had chosen to admit both white and black students, and the government had shut the seminary down. So there was plenty of room for Archbishop Tutu and his colleagues to meet with the prime minister. Tutu said the meetings were frustrated, so he found himself taking a break in the seminary garden. He wrote about his brief break. As I sat quietly in the garden, I realized the power of transfiguration of God's transformation in our world. The principle of transfiguration is at work when something so unlikely as the brown grass that covers our veld in winter becomes bright green again. The principle of transfiguration says nothing, no one and no situation is untransfigurable. That the whole of creation, nature, waits expectantly for its transfiguration, when it will be released from its bondage and share in the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's some theology of transfiguration. For Tutu, Christians are a people of transfiguration, finding reason to hope in the most difficult hour. Bringing transfiguration, bringing God's transformation to our world, this is the Christian vocation. I raise these stories of Archbishop Tutu and Blessed Absalom Jones because transfiguration is often frustratingly slow work. As the great Tracy Chapman sings, 
talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. There are setbacks. The work for liberation, though, goes on. The work must go on. Because transfiguration is about creation being set free. Transfiguration is not about some external change, but about seeing the world as it should be. Sometimes the work of transfiguration seems small. But God always stands ready to transform our vision of what is possible. God dreams that we might expand our sense of how we can live in this world. And if I may be so bold, God doesn't care about whether we have an open concept house or a kitchen island. It's not about the shape of our nose or the size of our waistline. It's so much more. Don't settle for a spirituality that only works on exterior transformation. Elisha certainly didn't. These are tricky names, Elisha, Elisha, Elijah. As Elijah was preparing to ride that chariot of fire, he offered a gift, a blessing to his mentee, his student. And Elisha asked him for a double measure of his spirit. And the word in Hebrew is ruach, breath, wind, soul. Elisha asks Elijah, essentially, make me a prophet like you. Not in the exterior measure of power, but give me the depth of soul. Give me the courage of heart. Give me the breadth of vision. That's deep. How can we hope for that kind of change in ourselves and in our world? can almost guarantee you there won't be a Super Bowl commercial that wants you to have that kind of change. For that, you need the Bible. For that, you need a community of spiritual practice like this one. For that, you need companions in the journey. God invites us up this mountain to have our vision transfigured, just in time for the hard journey to begin. As you prepare to mark the days ahead, as you choose a spiritual discipline, as you decide whether you'll join us here at church for one of the several Lenten offerings, there's a sign-up table in the entryway. Let me leave you with two questions. These are the questions. In the days ahead, how can you make room for God to reshape the possibilities you see for your inner life? And the connected question, in the days ahead, how can you make room for God to expand the vision we have for our world. Once you've spent some time with those questions about God expanding, reshaping the possibilities for your inner life, about God expanding your vision for the world, once you've spent time with those questions, you're ready to go down the mountain. Amen.